Greetings, fellow pilgrims. Welcome to the 11th issue of Logosophia magazine, based on prudence, along with corresponding virtues, diligence, discretion, and wisdom. In these pages, you will find poetry, the first installment of a serial story, a discussion of boundaries, an interview with Phil Lawler of Adventures in Odyssey, and plenty more. We are also continuing our photo contest. Submit an autumn photo to win this spot on our table of contents page. Please enjoy and let us know what you think. Happy summer! Sarah Levesque, Editor-in-Chief. A note on the audio magazine. Most of the articles within this magazine were read aloud by their respective authors. The remaining articles were read aloud by me or by one of my team. If you like the audio version of our magazine, check out the visual version to find games, book and movie suggestions, and much more. All rights for this issue as a whole are held by Logosophia magazine. Once published, no submissions may be removed from the issue, just like in any print magazine. All rights for the articles, stories, poems, etc. within this issue are retained by their respective authors, including reprinting rights. If you wish to reprint an article, story, poem, etc., please contact us at editors.logosophia at gmail.com. Thank you. Wanted. Readers and listeners of any faith to interact respectfully with writers and other readers and listeners through book and media suggestions and letters to the editor, as well as comments on logosophiamag.com and social media. Writers of Christian faith to augment the works of our staff. Advertisers and donors to support us financially. Bible verse. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk in integrity, guarding the paths of justice and watching over the ways of his saints. Proverbs chapter 2, verses 6 through 8, ESV. Definitions, provided by Merriam-Webster Dictionary Online. Prudence. 1. The ability to govern and discipline oneself by the use of reason. 2. Sagacity or shrewdness in the management of affairs. 3. Skill and good judgment in the use of resources. 4. Caution or circumspection as to danger or risk. Diligence. Steady earnest, and energetic effort, devoted and painstaking work and application to accomplish an undertaking. Discretion. 1a. Individual choice or judgment. 1b. Power of free decision or latitude of choice within certain legal bounds. 2. The quality of having or showing discernment or good judgment. The quality of being discreet. Circumspection, especially cautious reserve in speech. Three, ability to make responsible decisions. Wisdom, 1a, ability to discern inner qualities and relationships. 1b, good sense, judgment. 1c, generally accepted belief. 1d, accumulated philosophical or scientific learning, knowledge. 2. Wise attitude, belief, or course of action. 
A prayer for prudence. Make me a person of prudence, my God. Help me to practice good judgment and act responsibly by learning, by preparing, by listening, and making good choices with peace and joy in my heart. I make this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Prayer from prayerist.com slash prayer slash prudence. Prudence is by Amanda Pizzolatto. Prudence is wisdom. Prudence needs time, neither too early nor too late or ever really out of line. Prudence is discretion. Prudence takes it slow, not quick to judge or to anger, allowing the truth to enter the show. Prudence is care. Prudence looks at all sides, carefully weighing the options, firm against the changing tides. Prudence is sense. Prudence doesn't bend. It doesn't give in to every little whim or throws caution to the wind. Prudence is frugal. Prudence watches every dime, getting what is needed first, splurging only some of the time. Prudence is wisdom. Prudence needs grace, caution in a changing world, until we behold the holy face. Holy Heroes, Mother Angelica by Sarah Levesque Mother Angelica is probably not the first person you think of when you think of Prudence. The hard-hitting nun on television dished out advice and wisdom left and right to viewers, callers, and letter writers. Her early life was difficult. Born Rita Antoinette Rizzo in the slums of Canton, Ohio in 1923, her father was abusive and later abandoned the family, divorcing Rita's mother, who had extreme difficulty coping with the pressures of single parenthood, often leaving young Rita to fend for herself amid the strong stigma against divorce of the 1930s. In fact, by the time the girl was in her teens, she was the one taking care of her mother rather than the other way around. When Rita was 18 years old, just months before America joined World War II, she experienced searing pain in her abdomen and was diagnosed with ptosis of the stomach. Her ailment worsened despite medical treatment. Months after the pain began, Rita and her mother prayed a nine-day novena for the intercession of St. Therese of the Child Jesus, also known as the Little Flower. On the ninth day, Rita's pain was gone, and the discolored lump that had appeared had vanished. It was then that Rita fully realized that there was a God, and that he truly loved her. She devoted her life to him, eventually entering a Franciscan convent where she was given the name Angelica. Convent life was difficult for Sister Angelica. Her self-sufficient past and Italian temper made obedience difficult, and another physical problem plagued her, an intense swelling of her knees. Yet she persevered, remaining devoted to Jesus. Over the first few years she lived at the convent, she pulled favors from old friends, relatives, and acquaintances to fix up the dilapidated building, teaching herself to read blueprints so she could supervise, while also holding the positions of bookkeeper, doorkeeper, and buyer of supplies. A fall injured her back, and surgery failed to correct the issue, rather making it worse. Physicians thought she would never walk again. Sister Angelica promised the Lord that if he allowed her to walk again, she would build him a monastery in the south. In time, through Sister Angelica's stubbornness in prayer and in practice, she did begin walking again, 
and then she began to convince her superiors to allow her to build her promised convent. Meanwhile, she continued to supervise the workmen on various projects, cajoling, advising, and always pointing them back to God. Eventually, like the biblical widow and the judge, Sister Angelica's perseverance paid off, she was given permission to begin a monastery in Birmingham, Alabama. The Birmingham project needed a lot of work and a lot of money. Sister Angelica's means were unorthodox. She and her sisters made and sold fishing tackle under the name St. Peter's Fishing Lairs, and eventually Sister Angelica was limping around Alabama looking for land. Eventually she found it. It cost the exact amount of money they had earned through St. Peter's Fishing Lairs. Throughout the building of Our Lady of the Angels Monastery, her later book project, and her eventual television project, Sister, later Mother, Angelica trusted in God. She listened to what Jesus wanted and went ahead with it blindly, though the world thought she was crazy. And every time, Jesus came through. When the monastery needed a hole filled, a stranger donated a hill of dirt that he complained was running into his basement when it rained. When their project funds ran out, workers donated their time. When grocery funds ran out, a local grocer donated food and continued to do so for the rest of his life. In 1962, Mother Angelica agreed to record a short talk, which sold well, earning her new cloistered sisters some money to go toward repaying their great building loans. This was the beginning of an era, for she continued to make recordings, first audio, then visual, for the rest of her life. In spite of old pain and new, Mother Angelica kept following Jesus' will doggedly, even though the world would have called her mad. It would seem imprudent to most to have the mother superior of a cloistered religious community speaking in front of people, but this is what Jesus called her to do. It would seem imprudent to most to order pamphlet printing equipment without having money when no banks would give Mother Angelica a loan, but Jesus led her to it and gave her the money when someone took Mother's want to lend us $10,000 joke seriously. The print shop was finished, complete with a sign saying, The Master's Print Shop. We don't know what we're doing, but we're getting good at it. This saying seems to be a good reflection of what happened at Mother Angelica's convent. Mother herself said, My attitude is, if the Lord inspires me to do something, I attempt to do it. I start, and it goes like a snowball downhill. I have to start. If it's not his will, it will either fall apart or something will happen to really hinder it. And the Lord led her to television, where she gave advice to many straight from the Bible. When Mother Angelica had a falling out with the manager of the local television network, she declared, I'll buy my own cameras and build my own studio. Again, this would be imprudent for most people, particularly without the tens of thousands of dollars needed for such a venture in the late 1970s. But the Lord provided, giving her $48,000 worth of equipment for only $14,800, a lawyer, a license, and thousands of dollars to cover some of her debt and the cost of a new satellite dish. Yet her new television network was still over a million dollars in debt, with operating costs also over a million dollars. Once again, this would seem terribly imprudent to the world, and so it would be for the vast majority of people. And her eternal word television network, usually shortened to EWTN, was a groundbreaking project. Despite setbacks and financial issues, EWTN thrived. Today, it is the largest Catholic television network in America, possibly in the whole world, 
and it provides mass, catechesis, saint stories, and much more to hundreds of millions of people. Mother Angelica herself was live nearly every weekday from 1983 until the early 2000s. On March 27, 2016, Mother Angelica died. Throughout her life, she did what Jesus led her to, whether or not it was prudent in the eyes of the world. Sometimes the most prudent thing to do is to step out in faith, trusting Jesus, no matter what others say. My main source was the book Mother Angelica by Raymond Arroyo, published Doubleday, 2005. Do I Have Prudence? by Sarah Levesque. Prudence is not my strongest suit. In fact, as I write this, it is long after my bedtime on the day the submissions are due. There are dirty dishes on the counter. My dinner was a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. I'm behind with magazine stuff and laundry and changing the oil in my car. So as I'm sitting here, I'm wondering, what in the world do I know about prudence? Prudence is a strange thing. It's easy to think of it as doing the right thing, in which case all my aforementioned shortcomings seem quite imprudent. But would that be accurate? Because my shortcomings don't tell the whole story. They ignore the fact that I spent last week on vacation, a much-needed, true, unworking vacation filled with friends. They ignore the fact that I went from one job to another today, driving straight to the first after spending the night helping a friend who, due to surgery, is not currently allowed to lift her baby. So, do I have prudence? If you'd also like to ask the question of yourself, perhaps we can find out together by going through sections of Merriam-Webster's online dictionary entry. 1. The ability to govern and discipline oneself by the use of reason. This aspect I'm confident I have. My logical abilities guide the vast majority of my actions as I consider if something is important to me, if I have the time or funds, if it would help someone, etc. If an action is unreasonable, it is quite unlikely that I will want to have anything to do with it, unless it is harmless and will give me a laugh. 2. Sagacity or shrewdness in management of affairs. I like to think I manage my life well. Few people have complained about it, and I seem to be fairly productive. I like to think I manage the magazine well. People help me fix things if they have a complaint, but that is rare. So I'm going to guess I'm at least acceptable in this aspect, though it is hard to judge oneself. True, my time management is not always what it should be, but I do tend to get everything done that I need to do. More on that in a minute. 3. Skill and good judgment in the use of resources. This one ebbs and flows based on how tired I am, particularly in the area of time management. Today, I was tired, so I used my spare time to read and relax instead of using it for this magazine as I normally would do. But it is important to have leisure time, time to reconnect with God, yourself, other people, and nature. I usually manage to cross all my T's and dot my I's, and there are quite a lot of them. Though it's not always exactly on time. For I have no sense of time, so it's hard for me to keep track of. This is part of the reason I'm typing this now, way past my bedtime. The other reason being that one must write when the muse hits.
funds I make sure I spend wisely, though I have been known to spend far too much of my paycheck on used books. But how can buying good books that also happen to be cheap be anything but wise? Browsing the shelves is also leisurely, and if the book's tales and facts point you to God and to virtue, it seems that acquiring such goodness within one's budget cannot be imprudent, for our spiritual needs are more important than the needs the world recognizes. All that being said, I've got my boundaries, and I'm fairly good at keeping them. 4. Caution or circumspection as to danger or risk. This one, well, it would probably depend on who you ask. Those of my friends who are more prone to anxiety might say that I take a lot of risks, while those who are more fearless might think I play it safe. So I think I'm in the middle of the road here. I'm more likely to risk agitating one of my medical conditions than miss any fun, but I do try to take precautions, and I'm not likely to put anyone else in danger. I hope you've learned how much prudence you have. As for me, it seems like I have some, but not to perfection. That being said, can anyone ever have perfect virtue, aside from Jesus and his Holy Mother? No, we must all struggle at maintaining that mean between extremes, not too much and not too little, until the day we die. And that's okay. So I'll keep working at it, and I hope you will too. And I'll start by getting ready for bed. The World Beyond Evermore by T.K. Wilson A follow-up to The Wizard and the Dragon, one of the many tales of Evermore. Find more at lobosophia.com slash tag slash evermore. Eredwolf could still feel the sting of the dragon's blood on his hands, though they had long been clean. Katrina slept, curled up like a cat on his sofa, while he sat beside her on the floor, watching her, still unwilling to let the young human woman out of his sight. His sisters, Burdine and Etta, lay on the floor nearby, both of them asleep. One thing was for certain, they had to be better prepared for incursions by the evil ones. It was his job to prepare them, all of them, for the next time a wizard rolled into town. Katrina awoke in the dimness of Eredwell's home, sore and disoriented. Where was she? Why was it so dark? Eredwolf! she called out. The ogre on the floor beside her woke up with a start. His sisters, roused by Katrina's cry, were on their feet in a second. Kitty, you're safe. We're in my sitting room, Kitty. She grabbed his tunic and sniffled a little. Sorry. I got stared for a second. It's all right, Eredwolf soothed. He patted her back and felt her flinch. He withdrew a little, thinking she was afraid of him. I'm sorry. Perhaps I shouldn't have touched you. No, it's all right. I'm just sore and it hurts to be touched. Well, that we can fix. Let's get her a nice warm bath, said Berdine, helping Katrina up. Do we have any fresh clothes for her to put on? asked Etta. Best ask Rosalba. She'll know. Etta nodded and went out the door to hunt up the dryad. Berdine took Katrina to the bathroom and lit the crystal lamps. The usual bathroom equipment was there, but the bathtub was oversized and made out of marble, something Katrina found very luxurious. Berdine began filling the tub, with a tap no less, adding Elysium to the water. I guess I should have expected the tub to be huge, said Katrina, amused. Come test the water. Katrina swished the water around with her arm. Perfect. 
Hilgris looked around awkwardly. Um, do you need any help getting... Oh no, I'm fine, you go on. Regan gratefully left the room. Everwolf sat at his kitchen table, tapping a pencil, trying to think of anything he needed to fortify Evermore. They would need more weapons for certain, and emergency food stores. Stronger wars on the Elysium tree and on Roselva's garden above ground. He needed more troops. Most of his men were women, and he was hesitant to send them into battle. But knowing Lady Catriona of Meridian as he did, he wondered if she would be able to help them. Katrina came out of the bathroom, feeling very much better, in a very pretty peach peasant dress that Rosalba had found for her. She hunted around until she found the ogre siblings in the kitchen, making breakfast and talking. I don't know, Wolf. You weren't there. You don't know, Edda was saying. Surely there could be no harm in asking. The child is too little to know. Oh, she's taking no chances, said Berdine. She's already taking them, already they're taking them into isolation. Tended by the smell of toast and bacon, Katrina came in. Hello, everyone. Have a seat, Kitty, said the yard wolf. He glanced shyly at her. You look very nice. Thank you. Verdine served her a plate loaded with eggs, bacon, and toast. Eat up, you need it. I doubt you've had anything to eat for a while. Katrina shook her head, already tucking into the toast. Edda wiped her fingers from eating bacon. Boy is so bright, and you know how precocious Elvis' children are. I understand her ladyship's predicament, but that doesn't negate her obligations to us. The pickle, and no mistake. Katrina finished her mouthful. What's going on? I must lay up supplies for future wizard attacks. More weapons, food, water, and have fresh wards put up. I'm not sure how much our patroness, Lady Catriona, can or will help. I think she would approve of your prudency, Artwolf. That's for sure, but will she help? That's the question, said Berdine. Isn't there some sort of noblesse oblige? Katrina asked. It's complicated, Kitty. She has two children, twins, a girl and a boy. The boy was cursed as an infant, the results of which are unpredictable. You can't be allowed to see suffering, said Etta. If he does, or knows of places where help is needed to mitigate suffering, something terrible will happen. A wolf is right, the boy is too small. He won't realize what's going on. Erdwolf nodded. He turned to Katrina. Will you come with me, Kitty? I want you to meet her ladyship, since you're involved now. Yes! Katrina practically bounced in her seat. Sisters, will you stay here while we're out? Of course, we'll handle things here. Katrina slipped on the sandals that Rosalba had found for her and waited for Erdwolf to gather his list and his axe. The pair went out the door of Erdwolf's home and made their way through the city. As they came down to the river, they found Kaelin. The wolver was in his human form. Sitting listlessly by the river, he looked like he had no sleep and had been weeping, and well, they knew why. In their victory over Morthon the previous night, they were forced to leave Kaelin's beloved Aisling in the wizard's hands. Airwolf knelt down by his brother-in-arms. Caitlin, you did the right thing. Aisling is proud of you, I'm sure. She came to me last night, he croaked. She smiled at me. I know she's proud. I'm going to Meridian. Would you like us to bring you anything? Caitlin thought about it. Please, a bottle of rosehip wine, and if her ladyship is willing, a red rose from the garden. If anyone, King Rodon will understand. 
Of course, my friend. Airboat from Katrina started out for the well at the world's end. The tunnel, a swollen river in the spring, was just a little creek now with summer upon them. The water tumbled down into the pond in the abandoned dryad garden, where now the ogre and the human found themselves. The city of Meridian is a few miles east of here. We're on the west side of the city. If we're lucky, we can get a ride in some farmer's cart. But even then, it's not far and the road is easy, explained the yard wolf. Katrina shook her head. I don't care. This is amazing. I mean, I've been in the old garden before, but... Then let us be off. The pair trekked across the field of grass and wildflowers toward the highway. As they walked, Katrina plucked up daisies and wove them into a flower crown. The grass smelled sweet, the air was clean, the sky was blue, a brighter blue than Katrina had ever seen. The adventurer had called her, and she answered. They reached the highway, which was paved with brick, and just in the distance a wall city gleamed. See, there it is, the city of light, the city of roses, meridian. Her walls are plated with white marble, the golden banner flies from every tower of her castle. Her streets are full of music. Her people are happy, claimed Erdwolf with a smile. Regular poet, aren't you, Erdwolf? The ogre smiled and turned his eyes down. I dabble. They walked arm in arm up the highway towards the city. They went along slowly, taking in the sights and views of the countryside. All around them were little farms, where they could see elves working in the fields. They smiled and waved to the travelers and carried on with their duties. Katrina, to their eyes, looked like one of their own people. They could tell from the badges the ogre carried that this was Erdwolf the Valiant, the garrison commander of Evermore, their charge in the human world. The main gates were open when the human and the ogre arrived in the city. The high street was paved with marble and surrounded on all sides by little shops and market stalls. Katrina looked around. It was like she stepped back in time. She wandered a few steps from Erdwolf, sidestepped a cart, and then nearly ran into a cow. The ogre smiled, bemused, and took Katrina's arm. Just stick close to me. It's busy here. She followed him, looking around at all the bright shops and interesting people. There were elves, dwarves, butterfly-winged pixies, gnomes and pointy hats, and all sorts of other people around them. She forgot her tired feet. She forgot the sorrows of her world. She only thought of her Erdwolf and the beautiful world around her. Erdwolf made his way up and up the street towards the castle on the hill. Above the gate was written in gilded letters, To All the Unhappy. Erdwolf, what's the sign over the door mean? House Meridian's gates are always open to the downtrodden who have no hope otherwise. Some of Evermore's doors have to have the same motto carved into them. As they approached the gate, a door warden stopped them. Hail Erdwolf Carson! I'm sorry to say you must leave your axe here. It is now the rule of the house. Erdwolf squinted, but did as he was bidden. And your companion? She has no weapons. She isn't human elf friend. Katrina Lawson is her name. The elf nodded and allowed them to pass. The courtyard bustling, bustled with people going to and fro, some hailing and waving to Erdwolf, who sheepishly waved back. Katrina grabbed Erdwolf's arm and held it, walking around beside him. They entered the castle, coming at length to the audience hall, a round room with three doors at the back of it. Sitting in large chairs were a handsome elf couple, 
both tall, fair, and dark-haired, and at their feet, laying on a blanket, were two tubby little toddlers. Eckwolf bowed to his liege lady. Katrina called up her memory of childhood dance lessons and made quite a passable curtsy. Hail, Erdwolf Carson, said the lady elf, rising from her chair and bypassing the sleeping children. Hail, Lady Catriona. I apologize for coming to you unannounced. It is no trouble for our garrison commander. We were quite concerned when you called for Burgeon and Etta to come to you. I will send them back by day's end, my lady. Oh, there's no rush. Catriona's smile seemed slightly off. Now, what can I do for you and your charming companion? Katrina curtsied again. This is Katrina Lawson, elf friend. Welcome, Katrina. The honor is mine, my lady. The lady gestured to the male elf by her side. My husband, Lord Yuisyon. Katrina curtsied again. Welcome, he said with gusto. It isn't often we have human visitors. Two chairs, one larger and sturdier than the other, were brought in by some staff members and sat near Lady Catriona's dais. Katrina sat in the smaller of the chairs, which gave her a better look at the sleeping children. The little girl had dark hair like her mother, and the boy had almost transparently blonde hair. Oh, how darling they are! She sighed. Catriona smiled, but her smile was sad. Yes, these are my children. Megan and Fingal. They're beautiful, my lady. Catriona sat back down. Now, tell me all the news from Evermore. There's perhaps something your son shouldn't hear. Catriona sighed. Of course, that is so. She looked wearily at her husband. Dear, will you take the children back to the nursery? Yes, my love. Guinshan gently shook one and then the other. They fussed and cried a little, but were soon alert and looking around. Megan hid a bit behind her brother while he studied the strangers. Katrina smiled and waved to them. Fingal's serious little expression didn't change as he waved back. Their father gathered the twins up in his arms, whooping playfully. Come, my little birds, back to your room now. Once in her father's grasp, Megan shrank and hid her eyes shyly behind her father's hair, while Finkel looked steadfastly at them, curious and bold, until they disappeared behind the door to the left of the thrones. Katrina turned back to her garrison commander. All should be well now. Tell me all. Erdwolf told her everything, of the battle with Morthon and the dragon, the betrayal of his cousin, the second loss of Aisling, and, and of Katrina's heroism. So, my lady, I wish for more weapons, supplies, and strong rewards you and your husband will have to set. I admire your forethought in this matter, and will of course give you everything you desire. Including the wards? Of course. Did you think that would be lacking? I know how reluctant you are to leave your children. They will be safe enough here while you and Sean and I come to Evermore for a few hours. She rose from her seat. Now follow me and choose what you will from the armory. Erdwolf went about his duties swiftly, choosing what would best fit for their urban warfare. Smaller weapons, crossbows, short swords, and various pieces of armor. For himself, he chose a short, double-headed axe, much handier than in close corners than his bearded axe. He saw an empty scabbard among all the bits of armor and pulled it out. It was curiously shaped, almost like the rose quartz dagger that Katrina found at the well. If it didn't quite fit, it would be easy enough to adjust. 
Wolf came out of the armory to say Katrina waiting for him. I asked Lady Catriona about food and water. She'll make sure we have a good store of everything every month. Thank you, Kitty. You're so good to me. To us. Katrina shifted her feet sheepishly. Catriona approached them from the audience hall, eager to see what Airwolf found. Is there anything else I can do for you? You've been more than generous. I could put some of these back. No. The fewer weapons, the better. Airwolf cleared his throat awkwardly. There is one thing. Caitlin requested a bottle of rose-hip wine and, if you may be so bold, a red rose from King Rodon's bush. Those we will gladly give. I'll just go get the wine. Um, my lady. Catriona turned. The smallest bottle possible, please. She nodded and headed right away to the wine cellar. Edward followed her, leaving his supplies with the armory sergeant-at-arms. Katrina trailed behind until she could catch up and walk by Airwolf's side. Catriona met them at the audience hall with a small bottle of wine in one hand and a bud vase already filled in the other. Here, pick the flower you like best. Thank you again, my lady. Kitty, will you carry those, please? I would be happy to. Katrina bowed as she took the wine and the vase from Catriona. The elf looked down on her gently. I should like to speak to you alone, Katrina elf friend. All right. Erdwolf nodded and went out the door to the right of the thrones. Katriona sat down on her throne and gestured for Katrina to sit on a footstool beside her. You have made Erdwolf so happy, Katrina. They carry such a burden, and I'm afraid it will only get heavier. Your light and joy will help him. My light? I don't understand. Just know that it's true. Keep watch on him. Take care of him. She reached under her throne and pulled out a box and handed it to Katrina. Open it. It's for you. Katrina opened her box to find an exquisite hand mirror inside. It's a magic mirror that will allow you to contact us here or to keep watch on Airwolf and your friends in Evermore. Katrina cradled it in her hands and looked at it. It was all gold, with a sun and moon symbol of meridian on the back and enameled red and white roses around the rim of the glass. It's so beautiful, my lady. Thank you. Katrina also offered him a leather bag stamped with the sun and moon. You might find it easier to carry this way. Katrina put the mirror in the box and slid the box and the wine bottle into the bag. Katriona then pointed to the door on the right. You'll find the Wolf in the garden. Just keep hunting for him and you'll find him. Thank you again, Lady Katriona. And I promise I won't call on you unless it's an absolute necessity. I was told about your son. The elf gave a sad smile. Go. Wolf is waiting, and probably impatiently. Katrina exited the keep and into the garden. Its beauty rivaled the local botanical garden she had been to. The flowers grew in a riot about her. The grass was smooth and emerald green. Everywhere she saw the little pointed hats of garden gnomes hard at work among the flowers. Ahead of her stood a pavilion housing a huge white climbing rose bush. Beyond the pavilion stood a magnificent red rose bush. Bush hardly seemed the right word. It was a tree laden with blood-red flowers and deep green leaves. Erdwolf was on his knees before the tree, speaking just loud enough for Katrina to make out. You understand it, Your Highness. You know what pain it is to love and to risk it to lose. I'll offer counsel, but you cannot give it. 
How I wish you could, my lord, Rodon. Let me take a flower from your branches, just one for my friend Caitlin, who is suffering from the loss of his love. Airwolf got to his feet and carefully nipped off a flower with a knife. He turned and saw Katrina waiting for him in the pavilion. Kitty, good, you're here. He nodded the street at the tree. Your pardon, my lord. Katrina took the rose from Airwolf and placed it in the vase. Did you remember the wine? Right here, Katrina patted the back. Excellent. He looked up at the sky. My, is it that late already? We should get home. The pair walked out the garden gate, made their way through the courtyard, and down into the city. It was now getting toward evening, and the shops were beginning to wrap up business. They were all up the sidewalks early around here, Katrina commented. Yes, your people work far too much, in our opinion. Katrina laughed. I think you're right. As they made their way back to the old Dryad Garden, Airwolf looked at Katrina. I suppose you're wondering what all that in front of the rosebush was, said Airwolf. I did have a few questions, said Katrina. Well, perhaps I can sing, explain it in song form. Airwolf cleared his throat and began to sing in a clear, baritone voice. Solana sits in her lonely room, sewing a silken seam, looking out on the western march, on all the roses green. And Solana sits in her lonely bower, sewing a silken thread, and longs to be in the western march, among the roses red. She's let her work fall at her heel, the needle to her toe, and she has gone out to the march as fast as she can go. She's but pulled a rose, a rose, a rose, and only one, when then appeared a fair tree man, Says, lady, let alone. What makes you pull a rose, a rose? What makes you break the tree? What makes you come out to the march without the leave of me? All too soon, they arrived back in Evermore. Edward delivered the new arms to his second-in-command, Cullen, all but the scabbard he'd found for Katrina's dagger. He found her comforting Kaylin in his infirmary. With her ladyship's compliments, she was saying, handing over the wine and the rose. She's very sorry for your loss. Kaylin nodded. Thank you, Katrina. Don't go drinking all by yourself. Katrina, you misunderstand. I didn't want this for myself. I needed it for a restorative in my medical kit. Oh! Yes, but the rosehip wine is the exclusive province of the Lady of Meridian, so that's why I had to have you ask for me. He smelled the rose appreciatively. But thank you for achieving this for me. That was Airwolf, thank him. Airwolf leaned on the doorframe, indulging in a moment of fantasy. Imagine Katrina as the mistress of Evermore, always here to comfort and guide. A little home with a little wife. He immediately despised himself. How could he be so selfish as to even think of bringing Katrina down here? It was ri as ridiculous as the mole in Thumbelina, he argued with himself. It wasn't sensible. And yet, even after he'd had a true berserker attack, She'd taken care of him without fear. She'd kissed him without fear. What should he do? What could he do? No matter what he did, he couldn't stop wishing for her love. He was interrupted in his reverie by Katrina touching his arm. I've had a wonderful day. I'm happy to hear it. Erdwolf offered her the scabbard. For your crystal knife. I want you to carry it as much as you can. I will teach you how to fight with it. She took it from him. She hugged the mirror to her chest. I suppose I should go home. Yes, I suppose you should. 
Will you walk me up? Herdwolf nodded. Of course. And have no fear. Once we learned you were missing, we locked up your apartment. Thank you. That's a relief. The mismatched pair made their way up to Katrina's apartment, through the secret ways and shadows of the world above. The long summer twilight was burning low as they emerged from the tunnel nearest Katrina's home, so they were comparatively safe. Katrina brushed her fingers across the back of Erdwolf's hand and managed to hook her pinky in his. He stopped for a second and looked at their hands. Katrina changed her mind and slipped her hand securely into Erdwolf's. He said nothing, only giving her hand a light squeeze. They arrived at the familiar veranda and back door. The light in the kitchen was shining, spilling a puddle of light onto the wooden planks. They stood each on one side of the light, their joined hands between them. Yoga released her hand and picked it back up. He kissed it gently, with as much grace as he could. Katrina watched him soberly, like she were a real royal lady. Be safe, Katrina. No, you be safe. I'll come to you tomorrow. Airwolf nodded, then melted into the darkness. The Joy of Boundaries by Valerie Somers Read by Sarah Levesque Normally, when we hear the word joy, we think of exhilaration, walking on air, a surge of endorphins through our system that bring a never-ending smile. And yet, we often forget about the steps it takes to achieve such joy. When a child is born, this type of joy is truly experienced as a mother embraces the child, with all the instincts of motherhood and a surge of happy hormones taking over her exhausted body. Forgotten is all the work that went into the preparations for the challenge of parenthood, the nine months of gestation, and the struggle of childbirth. Deuteronomy says it well, laying out a motto for life. I have set before you life and death, the blessing and the curse. Deuteronomy thirty nineteen. With every experience of joy comes hard work, challenges, struggles, and, often, pain. The act of setting boundaries is no exception to this rule. In his book, Twelve Christian Beliefs That Can Drive You Crazy, John Townsend states, If God built us with needs, then it stands to reason that letting our needs go unmet can cause major problems. Just as neglecting regular oil changes will destroy your car's engine, neglecting our God-given legitimate needs will cripple us. Page 24. As a busy mom of three active boys with various needs, including learning and physical disabilities, in addition to everyday childhood pains, I find it a challenge to allow myself certain needs and wants. I have always thought of myself as being selfish if I am not giving, but it is quite the opposite. In learning to receive, I am giving myself rest and recharging my batteries for the next battle, and, in doing so, I am providing my children with a more attentive and calmer mother than if I did not provide myself these gifts. These things could be the needs of showering or eating, or the wants of a coffee date with other moms, or reading a book, or watching something other than Paw Patrol. If I don't meet these needs and some of these wants, my spouse and my children will suffer from the pain of my exhaustion. Reflecting on the Trinity confirms these thoughts for me. The persons of the Trinity not only give of themselves to one another, but also receive. They give life to one another, and it is through this example of giving and receiving that we are taught how to live in relationship with one another.
If even God receives through the relationship of the three persons of the Trinity, then who are we to deny that we also need to receive? If true, this concept would make us greater than the Trinity, and we are definitely not that. Receiving allows us to practice true humility. I have often found myself struggling to receive when I have needed help, but I have grown in my journey as a mom. For example, I have learned to provide myself with mother's helpers, and when someone offers a meal when we are taking care of a sick child, we now accept with joy and gratitude. But it isn't just receiving. It is also letting go of the idea of perfection. If I am sleep-deprived and the laundry is left unfolded because I'm napping, it will be okay. My health for the sake of my children is more important than clean laundry being in drawers. Once I am rested, it will still be there. The acts of receiving help from others and of letting go of control are challenging. I know. I fail at this practice often. We need to practice saying no to things we truly cannot handle, and we need to learn to say yes to help when it is offered sincerely. These boundaries make our lives fuller and more peaceful. Boundary muscles must be worked just like any other virtue. It gives a whole new meaning to the old phrases of wisdom, let your yes mean yes and your no mean no, or say what you mean and mean what you say. Embrace the blessing and the curse, and true joy will follow. The Knights of Adonai 1 A Letter to Brother Owain by Joshua David Ling Brother Owain sat at his writing desk, puzzling over with Quill, the words that he must now employ to do the Lord's great will. It was the year 1313, and much was occurring in the world. The Franks were losing their empirical grip on the holy land of the Lord. The Templar Knights had been arrested and dissolved by papal decree, and Brother Owain sought a path by which the knights could be freed. He was of the order of Friars Minor, and his heart within him was vexed by all the trials and intrigues within the Templars' nests. He worried about the men, who were set apart by God, to do the work of protection from hell's advancing hordes. The Teutons and Hespitlers were equally his heart's goal, and so he wrote to many officials concerning his brother's souls. "'I wish to form an order,' he wrote." where all that allowed may decide, instead of being transferred or exiled, to Derby they may ride, and join with me in a fraternal order that would allow these men to be, keeping their oaths to God Almighty without worry from them or thee. He paused for a moment, contemplating how he would continue then, and managing a prudent tone regarding the many men who were now seen as war criminals and had nowhere to go. He took a deep breath and sighed, wondering, how it could be so. This order would not report or be dispatched to any land. Their training and piety would be alone in our Lord and Saviour's hand. No longer will they pillage and raid or smuggle money and goods. They'll faithfully lead a quiet life with continued training in our woods and quiet prayer within our chapels and no longer have to be worrying of wars and declarations or managing money and fees. The only oath that they must take is to never speak again of all their previous order's actions or their life before this bend. I pray you'll answer swiftly, lords, and allow us to save these men. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, I exhort you all. Amen. Hi. 
Hell is Quiet by Alyssa Duckworth Hell is quiet, never loud. It deftly creeps along the ground. It darkens corners you can't see and dims the lights so gradually till eyes that once preferred the light are unaware they have no sight. Hell is quiet, never loud, a deafening silence in a shroud. Controversy Corner. Controversy Corner is a section of Logo Sophia magazine where people of different faith traditions discuss controversial topics in a succinct manner. If you would like to submit a topic for discussion, please let us know. Don't see your denomination represented? Help us fix that. We're always looking for new writers. Disagree with a representative of your denomination? Write in and tell us why in a respectful manner, and we'll publish it in our next magazine under Letters to the Editor. For these and any other questions, comments, or suggestions, email us at editors.logosophia at gmail.com. Controversy Corner How does your denomination define concupiscence, and how does it relate to original sin? Confessional Lutheran, represented by Jordan Christensen, a.k.a. J.C. Ellis, read by Sarah Levesque. The second article of the Augsburg Confession, the chief confessional document of the Lutheran Church, states, quote, Also they, i.e. the Lutheran Church, teach that since the fall of Adam, all men begotten in the natural way are born with sin, that is, without the fear of God, without trusting God, and with concupiscence, and that this disease, or vice of origin, is truly sin, even now condemning and bringing eternal death upon those not born again through baptism and the Holy Ghost. They condemn the Pelagians and others who deny that original depravity is sin, and who, to obscure the glory of Christ's merit and benefits, argue that man can be justified before God by his own strength and reason. End quote. The desire to sin, that is concupiscence, is sin itself. For example, look at the commandment, Thou shalt not covet. Noah Webster, in his 1828 dictionary, defines covet in this context, quote, To desire inordinately, to desire that which it is unlawful to obtain or possess, in a bad sense, end quote. To covet, then, can be defined as a desire to steal. If it is a sin to desire to steal, how then is it not a sin to desire to murder, etc.? Additionally, it is important to note that to be tempted in a biblical sense is not to feel a desire to sin, but rather to be tested. As the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, states, quote, Temptation is the act of putting a quality of man to the test, specifically his life with and toward God, end quote. This is important to note because we strongly asservate that Christ was, is, and ever shall be without sin, and he, whilst upon this earth before his ascent into heaven, was tempted as stated in the Epistle to the Hebrews, chapter 4. Presbyterian Church in America, represented by Joshua David Ling. The word concupiscence is not widely used in Presbyterian circles, but the concept is definitely one that gets bandied about by all sides, conservative and liberal. 
Going back to Augustine, who is quoted by many Presbyterians, regarding the physical urges that God grants to us and their relation to sin. During the Reformation, there were major advancements in this area toward a healthy thanksgiving for the natural appetites of man, especially among the Puritans. The phrase puritanical is somewhat of a misnomer in this way. To really go into this fully, I am going to need to do an episode on this topic on my podcast, Poets at War. Stay tuned. Roman Catholic, represented by Sarah Levesque. The Catechism of the Catholic Church states, Etymologically, concupiscence can refer to any intense form of human desire. Christian theology has given it a particular meaning, the movement of the sensitive appetite contrary to the operation of the human reason. The Apostle St. Paul identifies it with the rebellion of the flesh against the spirit. Concupiscence stems from the disobedience of the first sin. It unsettles man's moral faculties and, without being in itself an offense, inclines man to commit sins. Catechism of the Catholic Church 2515 Thus, the Catholic Church teaches that concupiscence, man's tendency towards sin, is one of the effects of original sin. Original sin itself is the deprivation of original holiness and justice. And the Catechism goes on to state that, Human nature has not been totally corrupted. It is wounded in the natural powers proper to it, subject to ignorance, suffering, and the dominion of death, and inclined to sin, an inclination to evil that is called concupiscence. Baptism, by imparting the life of Christ's grace, erases original sin and turns a man back toward God, but the consequences for nature, weakened and inclined to evil, persist in man and summon him to spiritual battle. Catechism of the Catholic Church, 405. Yet while baptism erases original sin and turns a man back towards God, the effects, including concupiscence, remain. Use Prudence Today by Amanda Pizzolatto. You need to have an opinion on this, and you need it today. You need to save money. Stop buying things we don't need. Are these and other similar lines driving you crazy? What can you say to such talking points? It is true, though. In today's society, things seem to have to be fast, and you have to buy everything you want. But we humans aren't meant to make such hasty decisions, especially with so little information. If we do, and we find out we were wrong, we make ourselves quite a fool. So, what can we do? Well, do I have news for you? If you're still here and interested, I have just the thing. A tool called Prudence. No, it's not a girl, though many girls have been given the name Prudence. Prudence is a great tool, a discipline, much like an exercise regime, where you say no to forming an opinion right away, where you say no to things you want. You start off small, and the more you do it, the better you'll get at it. And better yet, it's free! Unless you need a consultant or a coach, which will cost you a pretty penny. But you don't have to purchase their services just yet, as you can start with the free trial. With a bit of practice and enough determination, you might not even need the services. So what are you waiting for? You can start today! That's right, don't wait, try Prudence today! And if your friends and family continue to pester you about making a prompt decision, tell them about the effects of Prudence both in your life and the lives of many great people. 
don't wait another minute and start using Prudence today. The Prudent Engraver in Willa Cather's book, O Pioneers, by Mary McCulley, read by Sarah Levesque. After doing a close reading of several passages from Willa Cather's book, O Pioneers, with my college literature class, students eagerly try to guess my theory on who the narrator of the story might be. It never fails that one student will say, quote, whoever the narrator is, they must be in love with Alexandra, end quote. The story follows the life of Alexandra Bergstrom, a steadfast, driven, Nebraskan pioneer woman whose nurturing of the wild land brings abundance in return. But it is not the central figure who intrigues me the most. I have become convinced that Cather's most artistic character, the quiet, angsty Carl Ludstrom, is the voice behind the limited, omniscient narration in this tragic yet hopeful love story. I use this speculation to engage my students, who may be initially reluctant to immerse themselves in the pages of narration that wind and wander over the expanse of the Nebraska prairie. They would sooner skip forward to the passages that detail the passionate yet imprudent love story between the youthful Marie and Emile. The task of slowly and carefully observing the narration, though, gives readers time to mine the truer love stories. Nearly every time they read the text, students are divided over Carl. He has returned to the Nebraska Divide coincidentally after Alexandra has become the most successful landowner in the region. He, on the other hand, has spent the last 16 years trying to make it as an engraver in Chicago, but his profession has gone out of style. Students, who themselves are eagerly expecting early professional success, become suspicious of Carl. Is he coming back to take advantage of Alexandra's wealth? Is he lazy? Is he just a failed, washed-up artist? If Carl is indeed the narrator, as I propose, I feel that these responses to his character reveal how culture mistakes the understanding of prudence and success. Alexandra's story shows them what they want to see. She worked hard, took risks, and ended up wealthy. The American Dream. Of course, the book conveniently leaves out the many years she struggled through debt. Carl, however, left the land with his family when he was only a boy, because they gave up on the pioneer dream. He spent years chasing after a profession that yielded no financial boon. In many students' eyes, he has squandered his life. But as we see at the end of the text, Carl's value lies in his understanding of others, and his slow, methodical tending of friendship and love. It is this love and friendship that Alexandra realizes means more to her than all the wealth in the world. If indeed we can read the narration as Carl's voice, we see the narrator not celebrating himself, but extolling the daring Alexandra. His gaze is often followed by one of the tableau vivants, or still pictures of Alexandra. Quote, Carl came quietly and slowly up the garden path, looking intently at Alexandra. She did not hear him. She was standing perfectly still, with that serious ease so characteristic of her. Her thick, reddish braids, twisted about her head, fairly burned in the sunlight. The air was cool enough to make the warm sun pleasant on one's back and shoulders, and so clear that the eye could follow a hawk up and up, 
into the blazing blue depths of the sky, end quote. Though Carl's engraving skills failed to secure him financial wealth, his ability to observe and honor others captures intangible riches of love. We see these ekphrastic passages or engravings of Alexander throughout the text, indicating his skill in unearthing the riches of the natural world for the reader, alongside the dazzling portrait of the pioneer woman. Scholars have often noted that Alexandra seems unlikely to fully understand herself, even though she is such an esteemed protagonist. The text describes her heart as if it were, quote, hiding down, quote, in the earth, connected but unable to express that connection. It pictures, quote, her mind as a white book with clear writing about the weather and beasts and growing things. Not many people would have cared to read it, only a happy few, end quote. But the narrator is obviously among the happy few, for it is only through the narration that Alexandra's thoughts, her love, and thus her story become transcribed and accessible. The artistic narrator, again, who I believe is Carl, becomes a scribe that pulls the pulsing of the main character's heart into words and song. Quote, the chirping of the insects down in the long grass had been like the sweetest music with the quail and the plover and all the little wild things that crooned or buzzed in the sun, end quote. As an artist, Carl self-consciously shrugs off praise for his art when Alexandra displays his watercolor sketches on her parlor walls. He embarrassingly claims that these were, quote, done for amusement, end quote, and that he simply sent them to Alexandra to remind her of him, quote, not because they were good, end quote. But despite his self-depreciation, no one can deny that Carl is an astute observer. Everywhere he goes, he is looking. When he spies Alexandra after returning from his 16-year absence, he again paints a picture that could only come from an observant admirer. Quote, Her figure is fuller, and she has more color. She seems sunnier and more vigorous than she did as a young girl but she has the same calmness and deliberation of manners, the same clear eyes, and she still wears her hair in two braids wound round her head. It is so curly that fiery ends escape from the braids and make her head look like one of the big double sunflowers that fringes her vegetable garden. But where her collar falls away from her neck, or where her sleeves are pushed back from her wrist, the skin is of such smoothness and whiteness as none but Swedish women ever possess. Skin with the freshness of snow itself. End quote. Carl's slow, prudent friendship exists in sharp contrast to Emile's passionate love for Marie. Spoiler. After Marie's jealous husband Frank shoots Marie and Emile under the mulberry tree when he finds them in their night of illicit love, Alexandra blames herself for not seeing their passion unfold before her. She becomes despondent and weary at the senselessness of it all. In the end, Carl returns to Alexandra to be her shoulder of emotional support. If we are careful readers, we would not hastily judge his wisdom and prudence based on immediate success or lack thereof. The story of Carl's artistic career parallels his patient tree watering as a young man. Tucked away in the middle of the narrative, we learn that when he and Alexandra were young, they had purchased apricot seeds to plant. For years and years, Carl kept the trees alive, quote, watering them with his own back, end quote. Like the growth of the trees, his love story took time, 
cultivation, and persistence. The trees for years did not bear observable fruit, just as Carl's engravings yielded little financial reward. But one day, when the time was ripe, he returned, and the apricots had blossomed alongside his and Alexandra's love. He waited for what he could not see. In the end, he is the quiet, circumspect hero, the one who allows Alexandra to finally rest from her labors and grief in his offer of friendship. He helps her understand herself and her story while laying aside his own importance. In my eyes, this is success. All right. My name is Sarah Levesque, and with me today, I have Phil Lawler. Howdy. <laughs> Can you tell us a little bit about yourself, please? Sure. I'm an old man. <laughs> I am one of the creators of Adventures in Odyssey. Uh, I'm also a, a professor and teacher of, uh, of writing um, at uh, Azusa Pacific University, and I've taught in the past at California State Los Angeles. Um, writing, specifically dramatic writing, script writing, directing, um, all of those things. I've been doing that for the better part of 40 years now. And um, so that's basically me in a nutshell. I, 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 I don't know how much detail you want me to go into, but I do writing, I do acting, I do directing, I do all of those kinds of things. That's been my life. That's awesome. So when did you start writing? Um, I actually have written pretty much from the beginning. Um, ever since I was very young, I, I found I really enjoyed the process of writing, even in school, writing stories and things like that. Um, but I started out as an actor. I really liked acting more than anything else. And um, so I uh, got involved in a lot of local productions as I was growing up as a teenager. Um, and I got, uh, I did a lot of musicals. I did a lot of dramatic plays. And actually, after I graduated from high school, there were people who were telling me, you know, you really need to go out to Los Angeles. You need to go out to Hollywood. There's nobody who looks like you. You look so, you have a unique look. So you should, really should go out there. So my wife and I moved out there. And um, there's a, there used to be a paper called Dramalog. And it actually has all of the um, casting that's going on in town, around town and whatnot for movies, for television, for radio, for theater uh, projects. And um, I would see in Dramalog, a description of the character they wanted and it was me it looked it was, it was me this tall this hair coloring skin color all, all that sort of stuff it was me and i'm like okay i got this i go there and i go to the audition and there are 50 other guys who look just like me and <laughs> and all of them are connected i have no connections with anybody so i never got anything and so i thought well maybe i should turn to putting the words in the mouths of the actors instead of actually doing the acting i still like acting i still enjoy it but uh, maybe I should maybe I should try that. And so I went back to my writing. Um, I did stuff on my own, just like everybody else when they start out. I did stuff on my own that I didn't expect anybody to ever see. I started journal writing is what I started doing more than anything else, just because I wanted to learn how to play with words and see how I could make words work in the right way. And uh, and then then uh, slowly over the over the years, went to school in different places and started submitting projects and started writing and submitting articles to magazines. So when I first started uh, out, I made, I, I wrote a couple of articles. Uh, one, one magazine was actually a short story magazine. It was, it was all fiction. And then the other magazine that I submitted to, I did this on the same day. 
finished two articles. The other magazine was to a, an industry magazine called uh, Box Office, Box Office Magazine. And it was about some film services stuff that I, I had been associated with and doing. And I waited just like everybody else waits. Um, mm -hmm. Back then you were really waiting because it was all snail mail or there was no email. Right. And so I was waiting for a, for a reply and then you get them, you know, somebody sends you a, a letter and they, in, in this instance, it was the literary magazine that had sent me the letter and I opened it up and there were, it was a very small paragraph, teeny weeny paragraph and, uh, and on it read, um, and I quote, uh, you will never be a writer, break all your pencils, you will never be a writer. And uh, the next day I got a letter from Box Office Magazine and they said, we love your article. We want to buy it. Congratulations. You just made a sale. <laughs> so you, you know, you never can tell, you never can tell what you want, uh, what you're going to, what's going to happen, how it's going to work. Um, you have to stick with it. You have to keep, um, keep on doing it, keep on keeping on. Um, and if you love it enough, uh, hopefully something will happen. There you go. So what was your first book that you wrote? first book that I wrote was, I think the first big book that I wrote was The Complete Guide to Adventures in Odyssey. In fact, I think I have it right here. I have a copy of it. It was a big complete guide. It's the old, old guide to Adventures in Odyssey. Um, complete guide. If you have one of these, it's an antique. So uh, <laughs> that's really nice. But that was basically, um, let me see if I can put this back without upending everything on my desk. There we go. Um, uh, it's basically um, all about Adventures in Odyssey, the history of the show, how it got started, um, the episodes. There's a, a, a categorization of episodes. Uh, it goes by year up to, I think, 1992 or something like that, 93, something like that, um, which, of course, is not even half of the series at this point. Right. Um, but I did little, you know, little blurbs and, and, and questions and, uh, about the episodes and then um, talked just about the history year by year of how it got started and how it progressed and what happened each year to make it uh, to make it work and grow and uh, so that was the that was the first big book I, I wrote um, and then I've written a lot of other smaller books in, in you know ever since then um, leading up to the things I'm doing now which is basically the Young Wit series and uh, the Blackard book series so all right well we'll get there in a minute okay but so at the point when you wrote that book how many years had you been writing you were writing the episodes for Odyssey was that correct? yeah yes yes we'd been writing so I think if that book came out in 93 or something around in there, mm -hmm. Odyssey started uh, on the air in 87, at the end of 87. And I was, uh, I worked on creating it all that previous year. So 86 and all the way through 87 and actually um, premiered as, um, it premiered as family portraits on the Focus on the Family broadcast before it was ever Adventures in Odyssey. So there was a small 13-week mini-series of episodes that were kind of test episodes to see if people actually wanted this kind of thing. Uh, we didn't know we didn't know anything about it, if they would, if they would accept a, a weekly radio show or not. And everybody, the, the prevailing wisdom was, no, 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 nobody's going to tune into a weekly radio drama show. Nobody cares. It's got to be daily. We can't do a daily show. That would be, <laughs> that would kill us. You know, we'd die. Uh, to, to do one with the quality that we wanted to do it either it, it would have to be kind of a soap opera we just didn't want to do that so um so we you know it was a big gamble it was a very big risk but we put those 13 episodes out on the focus on the family broadcast and then got a lot of feedback from listeners and they really liked it um and said okay please do this and we narrowed the scope of it and we refined it and we you know 
argued about it and everything else that you do in the creation of a, of a show. And then it premiered in 87. Um, um, so from January all the way through to November of 87 is when the, when the program was in development. And then, um, then this was at least another from, from the, from the winter of 87 or November in 87 to, to 93. That's, that's where that book came about was in, I think it's, I think in 92 or 93, somewhere around in there. So we had four or five years of development, five or six years of development. And then that book came about. How many writers did Odyssey start with? Me. And then Steve Harris wrote uh, some episodes as well. And then Paul McCusker came on board and then it was myself and Paul for multiple, multiple years, just the two of us. Yeah, uh, we we get we get every once in a while somebody would come in and do a one off, okay. uh, but but for the most part it was just the two of us for for a very long time. We tried to get people to come in, but a lot of the people that we were looking at didn't know how to write for the radio. They knew about screenwriting and they knew about um, you know books and screenwriting and any, anything else because you know radio drama we were reinventing it. Nobody wrote for the radio, you know? <laughs> nobody wrote drama for the radio. And, uh, and so we were really kind of reinventing that art and that art form. And, um, and so it was very difficult. It's kind of, everybody thinks, oh, I should, if you could write one thing, you could write another thing. And, and that may be true to a certain extent, but there's a real special, um, every, every discipline has its unique things. Um, you have to write a screenplay differently than you write a teleplay. You have to write a teleplay differently than you're going to write a radio and an audio drama. You have to write those differently than you write podcasts. You have to write those, all of those differently than you write books. Um, all of them have their own unique ways of working and functioning and whatnot. And so uh, if you can do all of those things, you're pretty, you're in pretty good shape, I think. Awesome. Uh, so tell us about what you're currently working on. You mentioned the Young Wit series, and I thought you mentioned something else, but I'm not yes. sure. Yes. Okay. Well, currently what we're working on, I just finished book five in the five, first uh, Young Wit series. Uh, it was a five-part series, and um, it basically tells the story of John Avery Whitaker when he was young, when he first uh, started out. We're starting right from the right, right from the beginning with him. It goes into his history and how basically how he became wit, all the wit that everybody knows and loves, um, and just talks about his childhood. And it's a lot of fun because um, I had a lot of this stuff in the back of my head for years and years and years, and wanted to do it for a long time. And then when we finally got to go ahead to do it. Uh, all of that stuff is kind of pouring out, you know, and then I'm writing them with Dave Arnold, who's the executive producer of Adventures in Odyssey. And um, both of us are, you know, again, we're going back and forth with stuff and making sure that everything is right. But it's been a lot of fun plotting them out and um, developing those early aspects of Wit's character of young Wit, and who he is and how it works and his relationship with his parents and his relationship with the people around the small town that he grew up in. He grew up in a small town mm -hmm. uh, similar to Odyssey. This is, is called Providence. Providence, North Carolina, and um, and and it's just been a whole lot of fun to to go through. There's an overall story arc for the five books, and then each book has their own individual story arcs as well. So um, they're all complete. You can start at any time, at, at any place in the story. You could start, and it would still be okay. You'd be fine, but you really kind of do want to start at the beginning because that's as 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 a certain musical puts it, that's a very good place to start. So, <laughs> Uh, the other book series is called the Blackard book series. Now, if, if anybody who's familiar with the, um, the audio program, the radio show, understands who, who uh, and, and Regis Blackard was, Dr. Regis Blackard was, he's the bad guy, villainous guy, was trying to do lots of very nefarious things around Odyssey. 
And uh, basically, these are novelizations of his story arc on the show. So um, basically, I'm taking going back and going through all of the stories that that Regis Blackard uh, were involved was involved in, and now novelizing those and adding other things that we couldn't do on the air. So there's other stories going on um, in the middle of all this. What happened historically was in the middle of the Blackard series, in the middle of everything that was happening about five years into the show, uh, Hal Smith died. He was our first wit. And um, because we had to replace him, or we had to you know, do something to, to keep things going. So the books happened. <laughs> the books are all wit, 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 and then suddenly wit's gone. And now we have other people, you know, who are taking the, their place until Wit would, would come back. What we did from a story perspective on the show was uh, have Wit go out of town on a missions trip. And he's basically doing archaeological digs and mission works, missions work in other countries. Okay. So for me, I, 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 on the books, I have to, I have to, I have to create that. Because <laughs> so, I, I really have a great story arc for that, you know, mm -hmm. but that wasn't something that was playing out on the audio program. Um, and so that's been fun too, to, to actually see how, how things, the familiar things that were happening that everybody knows about on Odyssey, uh, those things were going on and everybody knows that, but now also there, here's some stuff that they had no idea was going on. And as it so happens, the stuff that happens in some of the things that happened in the Young Wit book series mm -hmm. set up things that are happening in that part of the Blackard books. So okay. the two series are actually actually interwoven. They're, they're connected with each other. Okay. So it's this big, epic, epic thing that, that uh, everybody has the patience. We hope everybody goes, oh, that's the reason all that happened. So about this, of course, is it gives me a chance to go back and fill in all the plot holes that we had in, <laughs> in the early versions of those stories. Uh-huh. So is it difficult for you switching back and forth between the two series? Um, no, not particularly between the two series. Um, it's, it's not really that, that, that difficult. I, I really know um, kind of what I, I pretty much know what I want to do with the books mm -hmm. as far as how those are going to play out. Um, both the Young Wit books and the, the Blackford books. Um, so it's not really that difficult to figure out exactly where I'm, I want to go with this and how I want to write it and how it's, how, it's, um, how it's all being plotted out. But I take a long time to do this, way longer than I should, <laughs> way longer than I've been contracted to. So <laughs> that's, a, that's a bad part of, you know, of, of having an artistic uh, temperament. It's like... Uh, this this is a business, but at the same time, you're the art part of the business, and you're like, well, I don't care about your deadlines. You know? <laughs> <laughs> That's not a good thing. That's a bad thing. So, right. um, but uh, but it's taken me longer. But at any rate, they're, they're like I said, the Young Wit books, which are longer than the Blackard books, but they're all finished now, and I have two more Blackard books to do, and now I'm on top of them, and hopefully, all all of them, everything will be released next year. Okay. In completion next year, the first three. Uh, Young Wit books are out now. You can get books one through three, and the first five Blackard books are out now. So six is written, Blackard six is written, um, seven and eight I'm, I need to finish, um, and the first three Young Wit books, um, four is written, five is now complete. We have to, we're doing some refining on five, just doing some rewriting on some things, uh, but that should be out. Uh, it should all be done and out next year. Nice. So how many books are going to be in each series do you know so there are five in the first young wit series mm -hmm. um five books and then there are eight blackard books 
Okay. And I'm hoping I can get everything stuffed into eight books of the Blackard series. I still have a lot to do on the Blackard series. So and only two books to do it in. And those are those are shorter. Those are like only 20,000 words or so. Okay. Um, so there, those are those are that's going to be a big challenge to be able to get all that done in 20,000 words. Yeah, because you write for younger readers, I would assume. Yeah. Well, I write actually, I, you know, I write it's targeted at younger readers, but I don't really write for younger readers. Same thing as the audio program. Um, everybody says, oh, it's a kid show. Well, yes and no. I mean, it is targeted at a certain age group, but it's really for everybody. It's for the whole family. The concepts that we talk about and the things that we do on the show itself are not just for young kids. Uh, from the beginning of Odyssey, I said right from the beginning, we should take what I call the Warner Brothers cartoon approach to Adventures in Odyssey. And if you go back over the old classic Bugs Bunny and Roadrunner cartoons, um, you'll see that they had something in there for all ages. When okay, you're really yeah. young, you, you, you like the characters and the, the slapstick humor and the colorful you know, scenery and all of that sort of stuff. You get a little older, you start getting more of the jokes. Mm -hmm. You become a teenager. There's, a, there's something there for teenagers. When you're a young adult and even an older adult, you can watch them and still get something out of them in the watching all, all the time. So they really were for all ages, even though they were cartoons, which are ostensibly for young kids. Um, same thing for us. You know, I really wanted to say, okay, maybe our, our target audience may be 9 to 12, mm -hmm. you know, about junior high age, maybe a little before that. But it's for everybody. There's something in there for everybody. And the reasoning was, if kids like this, they're going to listen to it over and over and over and over and over and over again. Yeah. And who are they going to be listening to it with? They're listening to it in the car. They're listening to it in the house. And they see it over and over and over again. Well, their parents are going to be the ones who are also listening to it over and over and over again. And as a parent, I realized, oh, you know what? <laughs> Let's make something for the parents, too. Let's make right. something for everybody. It might as well be entertaining and have some value in it for everyone. And so, um, again, it's very much like uh, all the major newspapers in the United States are written at a high school, at a junior high level, reading level. Mm -hmm. So anybody from junior high upward can read a newspaper. Um, same thing here with Odyssey. You know, we're targeted at a junior high audience, but it's for everybody. Everybody has something in it. Yeah. And that's the way the, that's kind of the way the books are too. The books are the books are um, targeted at a certain age reading wise, mm -hmm. but uh, the themes in them and some of the stuff that happens in them is a little bit. It's the same kind of stuff that happens on the program, but um, you know when you're reading it and you can kind of use your imagination, which is what of course book reading does. Right. into the world and uh, then you have to start thinking oh wow this is really <gasps> spooky or dangerous or exciting or joyful or whatever it is that you're trying to get across right yeah but i kind of noticed that not a huge amount because i haven't done too much recently but uh before the whole pandemic thing i was babysitting a kid mm -hmm. um very regularly and when we were in the car, I would put on my old adventures in Odyssey that I still had on um, CD. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, she was enjoying them and I was enjoying them again. Yeah. It's great. There's, what, we, frequently, I'll hear from people who will say, oh, I never caught that the first time. When, mm -hmm. I, when I heard it, I never caught it. You know? And I listened to this over and over when I was a kid. And now I'm an adult and, I, and I'm only just getting, oh my goodness, you did that? Did you mean to do that? That's the other thing that happened. Did you mean <laughs> to do that? Yeah, as a matter of fact, I did mean to do that. It's really lovely to put Easter eggs and references and you know, little things in, in the episodes uh, that kind of do go over your head when you're younger. 
Right. Then you come back and listen to it later and you go, oh, this had so much more meaning than I even realized at that point. You know, or it's just, oh, that's a very, that's a fun reference. That's so cool. Did you really mean to do this and this? Yeah, I meant to do it all. It's not an accident. It's all there. <laughs> okay. So why do you write? Like, what is it that makes you put pen to pencil, pen to paper? That is? Pen to paper? Um, <laughs> <clears throat> well, I could give you the answer that's in Shadowlands. We write to know that we're not alone. Or is that we read to know that we're not alone? I don't remember which one that was. It was in the <laughs> they're both true. But they're both true. Um, I don't think it's anything that lofty. I think it's, I, I really enjoy story. Mm -hmm. I, I enjoy stories. Telling stories is very important to me. Um, and as a matter of fact, in my own work as a professor, as a teacher of writing, um, I teach basically that story is everything. It's all we have. It's all we are. From the moment God said, let there be light, a creation happened, a story started, and the story is ongoing, and it has ebbs and flows and ups and downs, but you can't stop the story. The story continues on, and because story is all we are and what we are, it's really important for us to understand what story is, how it works, why, um, why stories are put together. Um, why stories from our lives are actually told in story form. This, I think, if people would understand this a little bit more, would help them when they're facing times of trial and tribulation and trouble. Um, a lot of young people need to understand, I think, um, teenagers and even younger need to understand that what they're going through right now is just a chapter. It's not the whole book. And, um, and if you think about great uh, events in history, whether they're from biblical history or whether they're from secular history um, or, or, or literature. If you think about great stories, how great stories are, are uh, developed in literature, uh, you see that the hero, the protagonist, is, uh, usually has their back up against the wall many, many times. No place to go. They hit rock bottom. And, and you would think if you left it there, that would be it. There, the story's over. We're done. But it's never done, you know, and the ultimate in that kind of story, it's sort of borrowing from C.S. Lewis's ideas, uh, is that the ultimate example is, is Jesus on the cross. He dies. He's put into a tomb. Yeah. You can't get more rock bottom than that. <laughs> if, it, if the story was going to end, that would be the end of a story, a sad, awful, tragic, depressing ending. Here was this great, great person who did unbelievable things and then dies. Except that's not the end of the story, is it? You know, the best part of the story comes the, you know, three days later. Mm -hmm. uh, and so we have to understand that too. We, we need to understand that that's, that's not just, that's the prototype for every story. That, that, that's what's so wonderful. That's the prototype for all stories. We're all in that situation. We're all, no matter how bleak and down and terrible and awful things look, um, how wretched they seem to be, um, there's always something coming up. What happens next? There's a next part of the story. And death cannot stop it. Death cannot stop it. It's just, this is like, uh, you know, the Princess Bride, you know, death, <laughs> death cannot stop true love. True love uh -huh. goes on forever. It's the same thing. Death cannot stop story. Story continues on. It, it keeps going. It keeps going. And so we should, because we are, we are walking, talking stories, we need to understand what stories are and how they work. Mm -hmm. and, and, and so that's why I write. One of the reasons why I write, one of the reasons why I teach 
uh, writing is because I want people to understand that. I had a great professor in grad school who really understood this more than anybody else. He, he understood this like nobody else I knew. And when you had a personal problem, you know, you'd go and talk to him and he, said, he would say, okay, well, where are you? Are you in act one? Are you in act two? Uh, maybe you're maybe you're at the beginning of act two. It looks like you're about to hit a climax in your life here. At, you know, he just related it to story and you went, wow, if I just think about it in that way, mm-hmm. it makes things so much better. <laughs> you know, it really makes your life like, oh, wow, I get it now. I, I understand that. That's and mm-hmm. he, he not only understood it, he lived it. And and uh, and I thought, wow, that that is something that is something to really aspire to is to really kind of live that kind of life. When you think that your life is just terrible and awful and you know no good is coming of it um where are you in the story remember where you are in the story that's a that's a great way of looking at it where am i in the story oh oh yeah you know what i think i'm just beginning i just had my peripatia i just had my reversal of fortune here Uh oh i was going along with my life it was normal and suddenly wham something happened and this spun me all around and i don't know where i'm going that's the end of act one this is only act one in the story. So now you got to turn around and now you got more complications and confrontations and all stuff that are going to happen until you reach a climax and you're going to go into the climax of act two and then you're going to go into act three. So uh, it's, it's just a wonderful way, I think, of looking at life in general if you look at it that way. Um, and then you can see all of these elements all, everywhere in great stories all, all the way. David, the story of David is just one thing after another that way, you know, yeah. ups and downs and ups and downs and character development and big thing, and false victories and false defeats and all, all of those kinds of wonderful things. Um, and his character develops all the way, all the way through it, which is really wonderful. Mm-hmm. So um, I, think it, I think that's just a really good way of, of looking at stuff. J.K. Rowling, when she was writing Harry Potter, uh, she she gave a commencement, I think, at Stanford University um, one year, and she talked about the history of that and how here she was in her life. Everything seemed to be going fairly good. She was married. She had a small child. Her husband, supposedly in a loving marriage and the whole bit, and then her husband leaves her, mm-hmm. and her world falls apart. She has a peripatia. She has a reversal of situation, and things get kept going from bad to worse and bad to worse and bad to worse, and pretty soon she's on the dole. She's taken you know, welfare and charity, and she said the only things I had left in the world were my child, my son, uh, my infant son, and this story about a boy magician. That's the only things I had left in the world. I couldn't, I didn't even know where I was staying. So I would go to coffee shops and I would sit and order a cup of coffee, the least, the cheapest thing I could find. And then I was sitting right all day. She Mm -hmm. said, I was at rock bottom. And she said, you know what I found out? I found out that rock bottom is a pretty good foundation to build on. Yeah. You start building, building, building off of the solid rock of the rock bottom. And she said, that's, that was very encouraging. And I thought, you know what? She's absolutely right. That's a really good thing to, really good thing to notice um, about life. It's those kinds of things that writing provides you also. You, you get these clar- this clarity of thought very much when you're writing because you're trying to convey it to other people. And if you can't understand it, how can you really convey it to others? So what has writing taught you? Every, uh, virtually everything. Uh, writing has taught me, uh, vir- again, virtually everything. Um, it's taught me how to use words properly. It's taught me the importance of language. It's taught me how, um, h- how precious and uh, delicate and powerful language is. Mm-hmm. The gift of God that it is. I mean, being blessed with the divine property of speech is unbelievably important. 
Yeah. Um, and, and, and how easily it could be misconstrued, mm-hmm. uh, the power of words. Interestingly enough, I mean, we could talk like this live, and if somebody were to transcribe what we're talking about and put it on paper without all of the inflections and all the laughter and all the stuff that we're doing and the joking back and forth, mm-hmm. it would seem like a completely different conversation. It yeah. would have a completely different tone. So you really have to have understand the power of words. For some, for some reason, when something is written out on a piece of paper or on a screen, it mm-hmm. carries more weight, far more weight and seriousness than it does if we're talking like this. And, uh, and I just had to learn that lesson the hard way over and over again. Um, but writing has uh, taught me how to create worlds and why that's important. That's also really, really important. Um, and it's taught me how to interpret worlds that other people have created, mm-hmm. which, is, which is even maybe even more important, um, whether those worlds are fictional or not. Um, so it's taught me, some, for instance, biblical interpretation. Uh, I, I know what I mean when I'm writing. Can I convey that to others? Can I convey that to others? Well, the people who wrote scripture were divinely inspired, but they were also human. Mm-hmm. And so something was going on that they, they were compelled supernaturally to write out and explain because it, it, they had to explain it to the group of believers who were following through thousands of years. Mm-hmm. Are we getting what they meant at all? Yeah. Are we getting what they meant at all? Well, if you if you start writing and you start doing it on your end, trying to do that with other people, even on the short term, you know, five years or two years or three years or six months, you know, we, are you going to understand what I what I meant? Um, you understand the difficulties of what they must have gone through, even though they were divinely inspired. You know, even though they were their partner, their their partner muse, as it were, was the, is the Holy Spirit who is telling them basically how to how to do this and what to do. So uh, that's really important for writers, I think. It's, it's important to know what you're doing, but also to listen and, and use what you're doing to interpret what other people are writing as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So who are you inspired by in your writing? Uh, I've been inspired by a lot of people over the years. Some of them have fallen from grace in the eyes of people. Uh, I was and very inspired by Joss Whedon. Mm-hmm. Um, he was a very, very uh, hero of mine, not personal hero, but creative hero of mine. I thought he was such a splendid storyteller, such a splendid crafter of stories. Uh, yeah. Back when he was doing Firefly and when he was doing that whole... Firefly's awesome. <laughs> wonderful, wonderful stuff. Um, I was in grad school at that point and there was a the whole group of us who were really involved in that. And we didn't really know it. You know, Firefly has sort of brought us all together. Mm-hmm. And we would start, somebody would say something and somebody would say, oh, oh yeah, do you watch that too? Oh, that's amazing. And um, so he was writing at some point, And I think it was after, I think it was when the movie came out, Serenity came out. Mm-hmm. Um, somebody, we were talking about it. And I said, how is he not a Christian? I don't understand how Joss Whedon is not a Christian because some of the, he explains Christian concepts so much better than Christians do. He just explains, he just, he just inculcates them in his writing and it's so natural and it's so wonderful. And it's just, you know, from everything from superficially, like in the Avengers movie, when Thor comes in the first um, Mm -hmm. movie and gets Loki out of the plane and Captain America uh, (laughs) is basically about to get ready to jump out of the plane and Black Widow says, uh, you might want to sift this one out, Captain. These guys are basically gods. 
Right. And, and Captain America says, there's God. only one God. There's only one God, ma'am. And I'm pretty sure he doesn't dress like that. And he just right. <laughs> jumps out of the plane. I mean, that's that's on the superficial level uh-huh. of, of, of profundity. But still, it's the same thing. He just inculcates it. He just, he just puts that into all of his stuff. As a matter of course, it's great um from the from that standpoint and then you know then when loki right before that when loki was uh, basically terrorizing all the people in germany making mm-hmm. them bow down and loki has that wonderful speech where he says this is not better is this yeah. not better for you you this is your natural state right. in the end you will always bow and the old man stands up and says not to men like you mm-hmm. and then loki says there are no men like me and the man says there are always men like you Ah, great stuff. That's so fantastic. And that's what Joss Whedon does really, really well. And all the way through Firefly and all the way through Buffy the Vampire Slayer and Angel and all of his early series, he was so good at that. Um, And then, of course, you know, he has this fall from grace. So you have to, you know, right now, I think a lot of us are separate, trying to separate the work of the artist from the artists themselves. I mean, there's so many things that are happening to uh, happening in the industry to people um some some of their yeah. really bad behavior is coming to light and you and you and all of us are asking these questions right now i think of do we then just does that nullify everything that they've done in their life because they're caught doing bad things or can we actually still get some good out of their past work and say you know what despite the fact that he's kind of a reprobate and has done really bad and awful things he did this as well and right. this is a really great thing. This is a really good thing that's worthwhile. Um, so I, I, I think that I think that's a way, a kind of a good way to look at it. Uh, one of my per, one of my personal, I'm really inspired by him is a guy named Doug Wilson. He's up in Idaho, and uh, he's a pastor of a Reformed church. But he has a a company called Canon Press and Canon Plus. They have an app, and I'm amazed at his output. I mean, he's older than I am, and he is doing 10 times the amount of work that I do. I just can't believe he's just, he just writes books like they're, you know, going out of style. And then they're just, boom, one right after the other, after the other. And he has wonderful ways of, of talking about books. He has a book called Wordsmithy that talks about how to write books. And another one called Productivity that shows how to organize yourself and get things done. And, um, and he's funny, and he's, uh, he, you know, he's a well uh, good speaker and has some really the, what I really like about him is though he's a pastor as a profession his degree uh, is in philosophy as was mine um, I had I have a couple of degrees in philosophy and a couple of degrees in in the uh, radio tv film and those kinds of things as well but um, so I, I I get what he's doing a lot of times I think that's the other thing um, when when you when you take philosophy it's very much like um it's very much like when kids take karate classes when they're little and the sensei <laughs> tells them, don't do this on the family dog. Yeah. Don't do this to your younger brother and younger sister. If I catch you, if I hear that you've been doing this to your younger, you're out of the class, you're out, I'm not going to do it anymore. Well, the same thing happens with philosophy professors. Um, if, you have, if you have a good philosophy professor, they will tell you, don't do this at home. Don't do this to your family. Don't do what we're doing in the class. Don't do to your family because they'll hate you for it. They'll completely, they'll completely hate you for it. And they're absolutely right. You don't, you don't, the way we do philosophy is not the way you should do conversations at your house. And, and I learned that the hard way too. Um, <laughs> Doug Wilson was, he, he approached everything from philosophy too. His master's degree is in philosophy. And so he approaches scripture from a philosophical standpoint. And so, whereas a lot of people are like, I don't, I don't agree with that. I get really up in arms with some of the stuff that he's saying. Mm-hmm. I, I, I kind of click with it because it works with me because 
uh, I understand doing. I, I I see how he's approaching all of this. So um, it's just he's one of the guys that I really like. I um, I'm uh, astounded by again by his output. It's just mm -hmm. wonderful. Um, as far as just public speaking is concerned, um, I'm, I'm hitting all the cliches here, but I really enjoy Jordan Peterson a great deal. Mm -hmm. um, he has been, um, he's had a remarkable, just a, he's a remarkable communicator, I think. Um, and, and, uh, and one of the things that he has, there have been multiple, multiple other people over the years that I've really admired and tried to model myself after and um, tried to model some of my writing after things like that. But uh, they come and go, you know, sooner or later, you sort of develop your own, your own voice and the way you work and you, it's all still borrowing from all those other people, but, uh, but by the same token, it's kind of uniquely you. Yeah. Okay. So do you ever go back and read your own work? I know there are some people that are like, okay, I always have to go back and read my own stuff, or I really like doing that. Some people who are like, no, once it's done, I put it away and it's never sees the light of day in my house again. <laughs> I, I, uh, I have not really listened to any of the adventures and odysseys that I have written and I've written, um, I'm approaching, I think like 250 of them, mm. um, since they were done wow. in many cases. So um, to say that I haven't really listened to them, you listen to them a lot when you're working on them. Right. So everything, I have to reread the scripts. I have to make sure that everything is right on the scripts. And then directing wise, you're going over, you're directing multiple, multiple, multiple takes on scenes and things like that. And then the production engineers take them and they, they may have questions that of you and you, you, you're hearing that, hearing it. And then you do a playback and you hear the show there and then make comments and then you do a refined final playback. So you get immersed in that program in a very short amount of time for, for, for that program. Mm -hmm. And, and by the end of it, you're like, I don't ever want to hear this thing again. I mean, yeah. just get it out of there. And I'm, I've, I've heard it multiple, multiple times. So I, I don't really listen to them. I don't, I haven't listened to them um, in a long time. A lot of, a lot of the time, most of the fact for most of them, uh, the last time I heard them was during the last playback that we had and so that's over the past 30 what 35 34 35 years um now occasionally uh there have been times when i'll uh, be will be on a trip um driving across country driving to see relatives or whatnot and we're flipping through the radio stations trying to find something and suddenly i recognize just from a little flash the odyssey theme or something that sounds really familiar and so hey go back go back go back and Lo and behold, it's an Odyssey, which is interesting to me because Odyssey doesn't sound like anything else on the radio. It's instantly, you can instantly pick it out just by hearing a couple of seconds of it. You go, oh, oh, wait a minute. I think that's, I think that was Odyssey. And um, so I'll go back and then be pleasantly surprised because mm -hmm. the memory was uh, that, uh, that episode didn't work at all. <laughs> it didn't work at all. And uh, I'll hear the episode again and go, oh, that actually was pretty good. I forgot about that. So uh, that's, that's nice. As far as that is concerned, as far as writing is concerned, you're kind of the same thing in terms of books. Um, you're kind of doing the same thing. You got to go over them and over them and over them and over them and you write and then write and then rewrite and then rewrite and then rewrite in order to refine it. And so I purposefully stay away from books until a good amount of time has passed because mm -hmm. I want to be, um, I want to have forgotten right. all of everything that I had to pour in all, all of myself that I had to pour into this thing, which mm -hmm. made me just so exhausted. I want to kind of forget all of that and then just approach it by is, 
is this a fresh story that works on its own accord? So um, from that perspective, I do, I, I, I stay away from it for a while. Um, and then I get curious and go, oh, let me read this again. And then I'll reread it. They go, okay, that worked. I wasn't sure it was going to work, but that worked. Or, oh, no, I wish I could rewrite that part. <laughs> <You know? laughs> that kind of thing. There's always, there's, I've, there's always improvements. You know, you can always make improvements and you can tweak and tweak and tweak and tweak and tweak until the cows come home if you, if you have a mind to do that. But that's sooner or later, you just kind of have to release it, let it go. It's done. All right. Uh, what is your advice for writers? This is the way, kind of the way I think about it. The most any of us can tell anybody as far as this business is concerned, as far as just the, the, the craft of writing is concerned, is keep writing. Mm -hmm. I mean, but it all boils down to, you know, that's, the, that's as encouraging as I can get. Just keep writing. I mean, honestly, I don't have anything else to tell you beyond that. If you can't stick to it and keep writing, then you should choose something else to do. There's plenty of other things out there to do. Um, and you should just do that because this is hard enough as it is. It's, it's, it's really hard. This is really hard. And if you have a fear of failure, maybe this profession isn't for you. Maybe this isn't what you should be doing. If you can't, if you feel like you have a fear of not being able to see the project through, then don't, don't see it through and, and don't, you know, use your time more productively doing other things. I'm trying to tell you the hard, cold, honest truth about what writing is, what the writing life is, how the writing life works. Uh, routinely writing is not for everyone. I can tell, I, you know, I know that there are a lot of people that are going to come along they go, no, that's not the case. That's not the, anybody can write. Anybody can write. Anybody can write school papers, mm -hmm. you know, but if you're going to do this as a profession, if you're really looking to go beyond that and do this as a profession, here's what it takes to yeah. do it. And even if you follow all of the, what I'm telling you, you still may never make a sale. Right. You still may do nothing in this business. Mm -hmm. Nothing. That's the gamble that you take. That's the way it works. Yeah. So okay. that's as encouraging as I can be. <laughs> Sorry, that's the best advice I can give everybody. Yeah, writing's it's not always easy. It's a demanding taskmaster. It, yeah. it really is. It's very, very, it's not, to do it right, it's not easy at all. Mm -hmm. And you have to love it. Yeah. And by love it, I mean, I know a lot of people, and even professionals, a lot of very successful people who are writers, who've made a living out of writing, and when you ask them, they say, I love having written. Mm. I love having written. Uh, I don't like writing, but I love having written. In other words, I like the finished product. Yeah. But I don't really like the process at all. And I'm like, how can you be a writer and not love the process? I love every bit, even when it's the most frustrating, awful, terrible thing. And I want to pull my brains out of my head because I can't <laughs> make it work. It's still, I love the process. I love every bit of it. And when I finish one, I want to start another one. Mm -hmm. immediately i don't want to just go okay phew, i like having written that now i don't want to deal with it anymore. no i want to start another one right away right away okay. so i love the process and you have to develop a love for it because if not it'll drive you absolutely crazy it really will mm -hmm. all right well thank you so much again you're very welcome all anytime right. have a good Bless one you. blessings on you thank you and you bye-bye mm -hmm. If you're enjoying this interview, there's more. Find the entire video on our YouTube page. 
The Morality of Technology by Thaddeus Hughes, originally published on MachaniaXDeo.com. The development of science and technology, the splendid testimony of the human capacity for understanding and perseverance, does not free humanity from the obligation to ask the ultimate religious questions. Rather, it spurs us on to face the most painful and decisive of struggles, those of the heart and of the moral conscience. That's Veritatis Splendor, John Paul II, 1993. There's no more defining aspect of modern life than technology's prevalence in it. Yet how little have we figured out how to use it to aid the spiritual life, or at least to not hinder it. In lieu of such guidance, technological progress moves at an unprecedented rate, displacing traditional ways of life unknowingly and unquestioningly. It encroaches on all fronts, often rending our eyes from holy things and towards the secular. We all know that the church once played a key role in architecture and mediation of scientific discussion, but the church no longer serves this role. She has not shirked this responsibility because of spirituality contradicting with scientific understanding, or that it cannot bear the changes that technologies demand. Rather, it's because of our own impatience, our own desire to worship progress, rather than take the time to plan how technology should be used in our lives. In all of scripture, there's nothing that decries technology outright. Technology is capable of having its right place as an aid to man in his journey towards virtue. Indeed, things of a worldly nature can help us in that goal, for our faith is an incarnate one. Just as the Logos was made flesh and dwelt among us, rosaries, prayer ropes, icons, and all manner of liturgical implements open windows into the divine, inviting and entreating us to grow closer to God and in virtue. The story of technological development is rather the story of how we have chosen to systemize and structure the created world. It is a reflection of our spirit. We can develop technology according to worldly principles or according to divine ones. We can build the machines of man, or the machinae ex deo, the machines of God. But just as you can only lead a horse to water, technology cannot supplant the effort required of man to become virtuous. We do not place our hope for salvation in material goods, but in our own spirits. And with our renewed spirits, the works we perform are changed and given new life. Yet many people consider technology to be amoral. Clearly how we utilize it is laden with a moral responsibility, but what is developed is also mortally charged. All tools have a talos, a unique purpose or end they are created for. A hammer is good for hitting, a spoon for stirring, a saw for cutting. Within these, there are many varieties of each tool, different sized wrenches, wood saws versus metal saws, rigging axes and ball peen hammers, teaspoons versus tablespoons, and so forth. And so thusly, the furnisher of a workshop dictates what a workshop can do. Those who create and furnish tools not only open possibilities for what can be made next, they invite them in and should be careful. They also usher old forms out as there is only so much room in the world for them to be stored, or at least to be used. And if the lives of, and work of craftsmen is shaped by the tool makers that came before them, how much more are the lives of those who receive from these later craftsmen? C.S. Lewis came to the conclusion much more elegantly and generally. Quote, what we call man's power over nature turns out to be a power exercised by some men over other men with nature as its instrument, end quote. Every time we choose to develop one tool rather than another, we alter the lives of those who come after us. Every technology we build nudges the world towards virtue or towards sin.
Musical Musings, Be Thou My Vision, by Cordelia Fitzgerald, read by Amanda Pizzolatto. Be Thou My Vision Meditating on this opening line, I am torn between two interpretations of the phrase, each based on a different definition of vision. This term is usually taken to mean a picture of something that is or could be present, in this way, we could be asking God to fill our whole sight, that we would desire Him instead of money, power, fame, anything that is not God and would fill our life's vision. This thought is affirmed by the third verse of this hymn. Riches I heed not, nor vain empty praise, Thou mine inheritance now and always, Thou and Thou only first in my heart, High King of Heaven, my treasure thou art. On the other hand, I am drawn by an alternate definition of vision, that of the act or faculty of seeing. When I hear this hymn, I think of the daily offering that I should pray much more often than I usually do. 
completely surrendering to Christ and asking Him to accept me as a working member of His body. Lord Jesus, I give you my hands to do your work. I give you my feet to go your way. I give you eyes that I may see as you do. I give you my tongue to speak your words. I give you my mind that you may think in me. I give you my spirit that you may pray in me. Above all, I give you my heart that you may love in me your Father and all mankind. I give you my whole self that you may grow in me so that it is you, Lord Jesus, who lives, works, and prays in me. How different would life look if only we saw it through the lens of God? What if God was my vision? What if I could only see the drug addict as a beloved brother? What if I could only see the loss of a loved one as their glorious entrance into heaven? What if I could only see the rainbow as God's promise to never destroy the world again, as millions of tiny miracles of chemistry refracting sunlight, as a sign of nourishing rain having come to replenish the earth? What if I could only understand the universe with God's wisdom, limited though it might be by the imperfect vessel it uses? Perhaps I would put less importance in worldly position and more in quiet walks in his creation. Perhaps I will be less frustrated when life's plans don't go as expected, knowing that the paradise in which I have a place prepared for me is infinitely more important. Perhaps I would look at the hatred and the violence in this world and be saddened by it, but also see it as a call to battle against the forces that yet will not prevail against the gates of heaven, to surrender wholly to him, to consecrate the self to his will, to live as a cooperating part of his body on earth in his communion of saints, to rest in his peace and act in his strength. Is not this the very act of prudence? Is it not prudent, imprudent to pass over his perfect plan in favor of our own limited vision? Is not the surrender of the weakened vessels back to the God that made them the best investment? Be thou my vision, O Lord of my heart. Be thou my wisdom, high King of heaven. Be thou my true word. Sins of Midas by Ryan Wallet, Read by Joshua David Ling Sequel to The Waterfall Found in Logosophia Magazine's Spring 2022 issue When someone commits a crime, they have to atone. But some crimes can never be righted, no matter how much the offender is punished. It's even worse when the offender is a king. As I trudged through the frigid rain pouring from above, I kept my hood up. My cloak helped most of the water run off me, but today the rain was so heavy, today some still soak through. I stopped at the wooden sign hanging over the dilapidated storefront, Percy's Shoes and Boots. Most people weren't out in the rain, so this was the ideal time to approach him. Being cold and wet on the way to confront my worst crime was what I deserved anyway. I took a deep breath and stepped through the door. The bell's shrill ring heralded my arrival. Percy came out from the back room, but without the jolliness I knew him to have before. "'What can I do for you, sir?' I lowered my hood and my former friend's apathy morphed into a hot fury he was desperately trying to control." He spoke again, but through gritted teeth, shaking. Follow me. 
I followed him out the back door that opened into the alley darkened by the storm. The breath flew from my lungs before I even gained my bearings. When I gasped for air, pain erupted on the side of my face and then all over my upper body as I took several blows, or when warm blood mingled with the rain running down my face. Indignation bubbled inside me. I came to make amends, and I'm beaten in an alley? How dare he? Everything was a blur through the pain, but suddenly, one thought squelched my anger. I deserve this. Through the haze, I half-noticed hands gripping me by my tunic and lifting me to my feet. Give me one reason not to beat you to death, Midas. For what you did to Lydia, just one. He paused a moment, breathing heavily. But I'm really hoping you don't. I just wish I could turn you to gold, see how you like it. Trying to form words through all the pain was the easy part. I don't have a reason. You could kill me right here, and you'd have every right to do so. The citizens of this kingdom wouldn't bat an eye. Some would applaud you even. But what if you let me live? You don't deserve it. I don't. I've ruined lives and took the life of your Lydia and so many others. I wish I could reverse all of it. I deserve the worst punishment imaginable, but that punishment isn't death. It's allowing me to be haunted every day by my actions. In the process, I promise you what I promised myself. I will make whatever reparations possible and not rest until I'm done. All I need is a second chance. I looked Percy in the eyes and watched his mind work. After several moments, he lowered his fist and exhaled. I'll probably regret this. But if you ever come down here again, you're dead on sight. Percy, you still have your livelihood. As much as you hate me, don't throw that away over my life. Prison is no place for someone like you. Also, I untied a pouch from my waist and tossed it at him. That should be more than enough to make repairs around your shop. Make sure you still have all your supplies maintained and then some. I don't want your money. It's not a gift. Consider it penance. With that statement I left, I said everything I needed to, and at the same time I also gave an old friend closure. Just one of a few good deeds since all my crimes. Maybe one day they could be outweighed. But even so, I had a feeling the guilt would torment me to my grave. We hope you've enjoyed the summer 2022 issue of Logo Sophia magazine, The Virtue of Prudence. If you did, consider subscribing, commenting, donating, or writing for our next issue. Tune in for our autumn 2022 issue, The Virtue of Gratitude. The submissions deadline is October 5th.